Hello and welcome back to Glass Onion, uh, a podcast where we go through the movie Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, minute by minute. This week, uh, I, Oliver Brady, your beloved host, who since the last episode managed to have picked up a cold, so if it sounds like I'm talking through my nose or perhaps you're enjoying the, the sonorous nature of my voice... Um, I want to apologise just in case anybody does find it annoying, but I'm back and we're today talking about minute 128, which, uh, no, we're talking about minute 129, which goes from two hours and eight minutes uh, up until two hours, eight minutes and 59 seconds. Uh, once again, I'm joined by Alex Gradette all the way from California. Alex, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm sorry to hear about your cold. I am enjoying your sonorous voice, though. So, you know. Well, thank you. If you've done it for, for me, then it's appreciated. I've been faking it all this time. This is actually <laughs> how I always sound. <laughs> I also did watch a Star Trek movie, so that's a little bit Sulu there. Just, <laughs> just for fun. Why on earth not do a Sulu? I, I, I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I genuinely mean that because I would do it all the time. That man has such an incredible voice. Oh, it's great. This is the Excelsior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, he's... I, look, okay, we're going to talk about Glass Minute, can we, uh, Glass Onion in a minute, but mm-hmm. can we talk about how in Star Trek Six George Takei just looks the part at the helm of that ship? Oh. And especially when, like, the Excelsior has been, like the jackass ship of Starfleet for every movie it's for been years. Made. like like it it they they it, it's it's it, it's the 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 cyber truck of Starfleet when it's introduced in Star <laughs> Trek 3 uh you know that the 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 beat to hell enterprise is absolutely able to run rings around when it comes up again in Star Trek 4 it's mentioned with total disdain like it's going to be a punishment uh, to have to captain it. And then you pop Sulu at the helm and it's like, you know what? That's 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 a that's a good goddamn ship. Like good for you, yep. Excelsior. That's it's like it's it's a it's 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 a redemption arc like on par with Benji Dunn going from being a computer lab rat <laughs> to like basically International SEAL Team spy. Six. Yeah. Which, which yeah. I've always said is a bit like if by Return of the Jedi, C-3PO had become a commando, which, uh, which I would also <laughs> like to see. But, uh, but you know, good on you, Benji. Anyway, let's, rudder, I'm, done ta- I'm done talking about every other movie except the one we're here to talk about. Let's talk about the one we're well, here to we'll talk be, about. We'll be bringing that back up later on in our questions mm. near the end because I do have a question that is pertaining to Star Trek VI. Oh, in brilliant. To talk about Glass Only Minute. But in this minute... We are continuing on from the last one, as most minutes in movies do, where we were just finishing with the fire and the flames starting to touch the Mona Lisa as Nat King Cole was singing over the top and it's just repeating, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. And we have Miles going down on his knees, his two hands are up to his face, he's mimicking Munch's scream and then he kind of moves his hands away and he looks a little bit like the end of the tune mm-hmm. when... Uh, Willem Dafoe is getting shot in the back <laughs> repeatedly. He does. And he does look a little bit like that. And then the Mona Lisa goes up and melts and destroyed. And then we cut to the outside where um, Andy, stroke Helen, uh, it's Helen at this mm-hmm. point, uh, comes by. I'm going to say that every single time I first mention her in every episode. All good. And I was doing it and each of the other episodes I've been on as well I know it's Helen just in case anybody sent in a message and goes does she still think it's Andy no I know (laughs) 
What an amazing but, thing it would be to get through this entire podcast and just basically having like like you fell asleep for a minute when they do the twin reveal and just and uh, and to not, to have not wanted to feel <laughs> foolish, you just kind of go with it. Like, oh yes, okay, I see that. <laughs> yeah. Going for a real Newt Gunray situation. Now there are two of them. But she comes out and she sits down. She's still wearing that wonderful white pantsuit with the blood uh, coming down from her chest. All of the other disruptors are sitting there on the steps. And out comes Miles. And Miles throws and I, I was going to say hissy fit, but I don't try to use that particular phrase all the time. He calls it a bitch fit, which, to be honest with you, is worse. Um, but I, believe, I believe. I'm sorry. I I I I just like to correct you on two quick points. I believe his exact phrase, and I'm not wild about using it either, is "bitch tantrum." Uh, bitch tantrum. Sorry, that's what it is. Also, I, I I meant to mention this last time. You you cited the blood on on Helen's top. I, it is important to point out. It is not blood. It is in fact Jeremy Renner's small batch hot sauce that's running hot. It is. So it's <laughs> it. It just looks like blood, and it does a good job of looking like blood mm, too. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Renner, he makes good hot sauce. Um, so <laughs> I would, he sits I would down. by the way, absolutely buy a bottle of Jeremy Renner's small batch hot sauce. Less so Jared I, Leto's hard kombucha. Not interested. <laughs> I would definitely buy the um the hot sauce as well just to see what it's like mm. and then to have my own at home version of hot ones yeah. where i just take random people <laughs> into my house and ask them a series of questions while they're eating hot wings um so oh, wait, wait, wait. has that not been what this is cuz i've been like housing wings this whole time like i, I was in, wondering why I you've been in, eating so many wings oh my god <laughs> i've just been like i'm sweating i'm crying i'm like i'm trying to answer your questions about glass onion but Oh, I'm an idiot. It's okay. I've oh. been having I've been having halloumi dippers because you know I'm very <laughs> fancy about that. But so we we'll, we we'll talk about I I'm assuming we're going to talk about what Miles actually says during that thing later on mm. the, the uh, piece. But he comes out. He berates Andy. Oh, fantastic! I am so punk rock. What, you think you're an alligator? You think you pop me like a gangster? No, you baby. Ah, you child! You feel better now? I hope your little bitch tantrum gave you closure, because it accomplished nothing! He acts like a spoiled brat, and then and says something along the lines where you've, <laughs> you've accomplished nothing. And she stands up, and it's the last line she uses, uh, it's the last line of this particular segment, and she says, Your feel of the future just barbecued. The world's most famous painting, you Dumbass. And that's the end. And it's a brilliantly cutting remark. And it's just, oh, as I said, I adore this movie and I adore this particular section because everything feels, I mean, it's leading up into the next minute where she gets the, what I think is the best line of the movie. But it's just, she is meeting him at his level. Mm-hmm. She is confident. She is in his face and she's proud of herself. And this is coming from a small town, like a school primary teacher. school teacher, yeah. elementary school teacher. And he's one of the richest men in the world running the biggest company in the world. Well, and and I, I just think it's brilliant. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that they've uh, established early on, like even setting aside the, the, the murder of her sister, like even for being you know, regular, regular people, Helen is deeply unimpressed by all of these people. Like, she, like, the one bit of starstruckness that she gets the whole time 
is when it turns out uh, that what has looked like a um, uh, just a, a large LCD screen uh, in um, uh, in in Miles's gym uh, turns out to actually be a live feed to Serena Williams. Um, <laughs> which is great because that says Helen actually has a true appreciation of, uh, people of actual achievement. Um, but, uh, but, um, and is of course a funny gag, but so she's not, she's not, she's never been intimidated by these people. And I love that she does get in his face because I, and I also love that he needs to have her victory slash his defeat spelled out to him. Um, it's because it, he still just doesn't, he still does not put these things together. It's not the way he's wired. Miles, Miles Braun is an idiot. Um, and I love too, that it's like her line, which is so clear cut, pardon the pun. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know, exposition like that is usually put in there for the benefit of the audience. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like, I, I say that, um, every time you have an adult explaining something to a child in a movie, uh, that is actually, it's for you, the audience member. Like in 1993, none of us had knew what a velociraptor was. So there's a child at the dig site who Alan Grant can intimidate. Um, excuse me. Uh, uh, Tom Hanks explaining to his kid about the Apollo one disaster. Like anytime there's a child having something explained to them, it is for our benefit. And I think in this case, it's a bit of both because first of all, it's a, it's, it's, it's sort of a courtesy, sort of a courtesy recap because so, so much frantic activity has happened in just the last couple of minutes. And Ryan Johnson isn't in this to outsmart you as an audience member. He wants to stay a no. little bit ahead of you so so he can delight you with the reveal, but he's not trying to make you feel dumb. So there's been all this frantic activity. And if you just showed up to a movie where it's like, oh, it's going to be a murder mystery. And then the climax is uh, not physically perilous or violent, but it comes down to smashing a rich guy's stuff. And you, you know, it's possible you've lost the thread along there and, and of what, uh, of the real consequence of what has happened. And it helps that you have not a child to, in the movie to explain to, but a very stupid man who she, a school teacher can get in his face and explain patiently how he's just missed the whole point of what's happened. And it's, it's terrific. Yeah. It's the fact that, as you said, he's a, a fully grown man who is rich, uh, beyond all of our wildest dreams and yet somehow doesn't seem to grasp what's actually happened like you've accomplished nothing Mm -hmm. like how does he think this and also the fact right i'm not sure if you have read much fantasy alex Uh, i'm going to make a i'm going to make a a slight reference which is Mm. um kind of niche and a bit nerdy but the wheel of time is uh, one of, if not the best, fantasy series ever written. I Personally, it's my favourite, but I'm not going to say it's, mm-hmm. it. Robert Jordan had his limitations as writing, mm-hmm. as a writer. But as, as a series as a whole, and it hit me at just the right age, and I love every single page of it. But there's a brilliant bit in, I think it's the fifth book. And when I say I think it's the fifth book, I mean I know exactly what book it is. It's the fifth book. <laughs> where one of the main characters uh, is named Neneve, 
and she has a prickly personality, shall we say. Um, she's a fan favourite, so I don't want any Wheel of Time fans going for me, because she's also a favourite of mine. But she's well known to have a prickly thing. And she's talking to another character, and she says, I'm not going to shout at you! Mm-hmm. And Robert Jordan has it written as, I'm not going to shout at you, Neneve shouted. <laughs> and it's just been, it's so funny to me. Like, I remember reading that as a kid and went, huh, nice. And as an adult, as I got along, I was like, man, that just gets better every time I read it. Mm-hmm. And Miles Braun comes out and complains about her throwing a tantrum while throwing a tantrum. <laughs> I also, I, 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 I know Ryan Johnson scripts things very specifically. I don't know what latitude he gives performers to improvise. So I'm just going to have to assume that, <laughs> that you think you're an alligator. You think you popped me like a gangster is you Ryan you Johnson's writing. me like a gangster. I love that so so much because it is such a horrible line. It's a wonderful line of just horrible sputtering anger that, you know, when you're just too mad to put words in, in correct order and so they don't mean anything. And I, if, long story short, if that was improvised, my hat is off to uh, Edward Norton for finding something that, sounds hits that very specific mark of what a rich out of touch person would say in a fit of pique that they think makes the point that they think is like kind of actually kind of like like slangy and a little racist too like because he's, oh, it's very racist. It's incredibly racist, but it's obviously someone who's trying his hand at active racism for the first time. Um if that was improvised, my hat is off to Edward Norton. If it is scripted, my hat is very off to Ryan Johnson. And I want to see his post-it notes of what the alternatives to that were before he landed on Think You're an Alligator, That You Pop Me Like a Gangster. Like, that's... So... It's like... It's like... Anti-bars. Like, it's... It's... <laughs> it's... Oh, I love it. I... I was fascinated the first time I heard it. Mm-hmm. Um... I was watching it on Netflix mm. and scrolled back to like, oh, what did he just say? <laughs> did he call it? Did he ask her if she's an alligator? Uh-huh. And I, I pull it back and listen to it. You're so punk rock. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. sarcastically. Oh, you are so punk rock. Um, you think you're an alligator. So I went and I looked up afterwards. I was like, what is this? What's this linked to? And I remember back in 2020 not being able to find anything. Mm-hmm. And then recently, just because I knew it was coming on here, I went and looked again. And it turns out there's a, a deleted scene oh. um, from earlier in the movie where Miles and Andy are singing Moon Age Daydream. Oh. And she is leading it. You're an alligator. And she's doing the whole, you know, really giving it socks, leading everything. Right? Oh. And it's a, so that is a reference to that, which means that this is Ryan Johnson piece oh okay that was a, a scripted moment perfection because it's linking back to a previous moment in the movie that just happened to get cut out and it continues that wonderful thread of miles having nothing inventive to say for himself because he's literally it's, just quoting bowie at her yes and quoting bowie at her in reference to 
something that her sister had done. Again, her sister was the driving force behind everything in the movie. Right. He's just been there sucking like a parasite that he is. I, I love, too, that um, uh, the, the, the punk rock thing, too, the, the sarcastic punk rock, I love it because from Miles' perspective, there's no such... All protest is performative. Like, it's all just posturing. It's all to 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 show, you know, how 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 ballsy you are. Like because that's all he does, right? Like there's nothing authentic to him. So no, his whole, you know, punk rock, punk rock ethos, uh, is totally borrowed, totally empty, totally performative. Uh, especially because he is and runs, he is the establishment and runs. Just courtesy of his group, everything from fashion influencers to academics to politics. So they they are the establishment. So he there's there is nothing punk rock about anything he does at all. Like it's 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 the inverse. But I love the fact that he thinks he's so condescending about it because he thinks the only reason that she would do that she would throw a tantrum like that would be just to posture to 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 front you know and because he still hasn't realized the very serious thing she has just made him responsible for yes and i i, I we're not going to give him kudos for writing this but mm. i'm going to give him kudos for the performance here yes absolutely the way he acts this out i i've got a little kid i know you've got a kid as well mm-hmm. Alex, and I'm sure your child at some stage has thrown a tantrum in exactly the same way with the uncoordinated arm and leg movements. Yes. That don't, re- like, it's like he wants to do something with his hands and his mm-hmm. legs. So he ends up doing, like, it almost looks like a Spider-Man yeah. kind of movement where he has one leg out in front of him and his two hands up but the wrists pulled back. I was, like, generally watching it going, he's like... No, you baby, uh-huh. you child. Like, and he's emphasizing the baby and he's emphasizing the child. You feel better now? Uh, and then he quiets down and he gets down onto his hunkers, as we call them mm. over in Ireland. Like, he gets into a deep squat. <laughs> if my, as my, my, gym, my gym person, my uh, personal trainer would tell me, he gets into a deep squat there, Oliver. Um, and he says, uh, I hope your little bitch tantrum, you're right gave you closure because it accomplished nothing and he's got this condescending mm-hmm. talking down like oh so annoying like it's the kind of move right that if it was two men drunk outside a bar that is absolutely 100% going to get you sucked in the mouth yes yeah, yeah, yeah. if you say that to somebody speaking the way you are the way he does the way he lowers his voice is like oh you you achieve nothing yeah yeah, and the the honestly like the fact that she doesn't punch him like kudos to kudos to Helen. She's not she's not uh, violent in that regard. Um, you know, I feel like uh, Marta would have at least thrown up on him, um, and he, and he would have <laughs> earned it. But um, but yeah, it's 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 a beautiful little performance, and it's kind of like we were talking a bit ago about uh, in one of the previous episodes how Edward Norton is kind of the perfect guy for for Miles Braun because I think Edward Norton can play likable but it's always 
It's always a bit of playing likable, isn't it? Because I think I think there is such an arrogance to him uh, as a performer, and I'm not speaking about him personally. I just mean that he conveys. Um, but he's aware of that and can weaponize it and does it brilliantly. You know, I think we, you used Tom Cruise as, as an example of how he'd never play a role like this, and it took me a bit of time to come up with it. Tom Cruise did play a role like this as Les Grossman, mm. but he had to be under layers of unrecognizable, just body metamorphosing latex and padding and just he had to play a whole other person because he couldn't i don't think i think we can all hear like i think if you read the script and were reading that the this this little mini monologue that we're talking about and i said now picture that in tom cruise's voice you would have no trouble doing it like you could do it faster than an ai engine could but (laughs) but i don't think but i don't think tom cruise lets us see him that way like we'll hear we'll hear on set recordings of it. Like this is very this is very similar to, although not nearly as uh, for the greater good as his uh, rant on the Mission Impossible set when um, uh, a couple of crew members weren't. We uh, are the gold standard, Alex. Yeah, yeah, exactly that one. You know it well. It's the same sort of thing, but Tom Cruise doesn't show show us that in a performance. He just is that a lot of the time. So I think you've got, I I think too many, I think so many performers are so protective of how, uh, of of their image beyond the role they're playing. And I don't think, for good or ill, I don't think Edward Norton has that. And I think it enables him to play jerks incredibly well. uh, Because he doesn't, the, the areas in which he does have vanity don't extend to needing the audience to think that he's good and cool all the time. Exactly. And we, we were talking about, I mentioned Tom Cruise last time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a completely different movie here and two different actors to compare um, here. Is, have you ever seen Gone Girl? Yes, I have. Okay, so I think it's a brilliant movie. Yeah. And I know, I know other people don't necessarily think it's as good. I think it's a, a slight uh, fincher, but I, I think it's incredible. Oh, no. That, that one's grown on me incredibly over the last couple of years, uh, where it's like, oh, no, he's really, he's, he's really batting a thousand on this one. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. So Ben Affleck's character was originally slated to be played by John Hamm. Mm. And John Hamm, I, I, as far as I know, was given first refusal or had been cast hmm. but because Mad Men season 4 was split into two parts mm-hmm. or the final season was split into two parts he wasn't available to record mm-hmm. so it went to the second choice in playing the character um, oh, it, it's amazing Amy's husband uh, what's his is name he, is he name? he's not David is he I, I was going to say David Dunn. Yeah. Yes. So okay. Uh, and Let's the only go reason I didn't, I balked at the idea, is because David Dunn is a footballer, <laughs> uh, a soccer player, uh, mm-hmm. who's very famous for tripping over his own feet trying to do a bit of Nick fancy Dunn. skill on the pitch. Nick Dunn. But um, and I was like, it can't be David Dunn. It's not. It's but, Nick. So David Dunn, um, he, he, Affleck is able to produce everything that David mm-hmm. Dunn's character is meant to be effortlessly. Because that's what he's living in everyday life. Nick, Nick, not David. David. Sorry, <laughs> David me, Dunn I mean, is <laughs> David Dunn is uh, a character who is being set up as he seems like a likable dude, but it's really easy to dislike him mm-hmm. because he does silly things like getting his picture taken with a big smile when he shouldn't have, right? Or being a little bit overly flirtatious, or cheating on his wife with mm-hmm. Emily Ratajkowski, mm-hmm. right? These are the things that 
he does. Whereas John Hamm is the opposite. No matter what he does, he's got an incredible likability to him. Where, so he makes John, Don Draper, who is, you know, repellent. 99% repellent. And yet you, you're kind of like, oh man, he just has to look sad once in one episode. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, Don, uh-huh. oh, you, you had a rough childhood. Can't stay Whereas, mad at that face. <laughs> exactly. Whereas you're looking at Ben Affleck, who, for everything I've heard about him, he's, he's meant to be a really nice guy. Mm-hmm. He's really good to his friends and all of that sort of stuff that you hear about in behind the scenes stuff. And yet, when he's in a movie, I'm almost always actively rooting against him. I'm mm-hmm. like, no, whatever. And it's, so it's perfect casting for David Dunn. And that's why I think Edward Norton is perfect casting for this. Yeah. Because... His intensity in his movies and his propensity to over, take over movies and try to direct in behind the director and this mm-hmm. sort of stuff really really gives him the vibe that he could be Miles Brown in real life. Yeah. And he could be this level of dickhead. He, sorry, Darren. Um, he could be this level mm-hmm. of unlikable and delusional because, again, that's the persona that most of us have for Edward Norton. Is he's, he's a little bit delusional. He thinks he's the greatest living actor. Yeah. Well, it's no, and, he's not. and there are all of these wonderful moments in the construction of Miles that are not, it's not, it, it's not winking. Edward Norton's not winking at us to let us know that he's in on the joke of this guy. Uh, but where it's like, if you do the math in your head, you realize, oh, Edward Norton's in on, either in on the joke or dumber than Miles Braun. But like, there's... Uh, these are not my minutes, so I'm I'm going to apologize for reiterating things that have been said. But um, there are two moments uh, earlier on. Uh, one is that in his in his extravagant gallery, there's uh, I think it's been commented on, but there is a painting of Miles or of Edward Norton, if it if if it's a painting that predates the movie, where he looks very much like his character from Fight Club. Um, yes. It's hilarious. It's it's wonderful because it communicates to us, oh, uh, this is, Miles is a guy who thinks Fight Club is good and cool, actually. Like, he is, he's one of the ones who doesn't super duper get it. And then earlier on, when he first invites Blanc into the Glass Onion and they have the conversation about how Blanc wasn't invited, um, there's a line reading that Edward Norton does uh, where, where Blanc suggests, you know, said, could someone have reset the box and sent it to me? And, uh, and Miles's, Miles's line, hang on one second. I got, I got to look this up. I'm going to figure this out. On, uh, oh, um, Miles's line in the script as written, I have it in front of me, is someone reset the box and sent it to you as a gag. But in performing it, Edward Norton added a, a, a added it says it twice so he says someone reset the box someone reset the box and sent it to you as a gag (laughs) he's doing brad pitt's what was in the box what was in in the the box box from the end of seven so so you get this great which which i'm gonna here's some layers of the glass onion for you so you've got miles is a guy who thinks fight club is cool and who takes on affectations to align himself with brad pitt so he thinks 
that uh, Tyler Durden is good and cool, which is, of course, meta-hilarious because Edward Norton is the star of Fight Club, and if he's going to identify with anyone in that movie, you would think it would be the one who, for some reason, looks exactly like him. Um, but that guy's not cool. He's, he's a loser. He doesn't have a stolen sports car and a vintage leather jacket. But then on top of that, by adding that additional read of someone reset the box... Miles is buying time to comprehend the situation. Like, he has to repeat it to himself to really get what's going on here. Um, so it's it, it's just brilliant characterization, and it's like, Edward Norton may have a bit of a public persona that we don't have to love. Uh, that is not what we... That, that he's, he, is, he is a performer. If we like the way he performs in things... That's good enough. We don't actually have to necessarily like him as a person. But I will give him a lot of credit for being willing to portray su- a, a, a man of such incuriosity and and lack of intelligence that he has to... who sucks in the creativity of others up to and including things that Edward Norton himself is a part of. And I give Edward Norton a lot of credit for being willing to take things that far. That actually, that to me shows a bit of, of, uh, of courage and sense of humor on his part. So kudos. Yeah. I said, it's been, it's, it's one of the best performances he's put in in years and I'm delighted to see him doing it. just to um to mm. change tack a little bit, mm. I just want to talk about the cinematography a little bit in this yeah. film. And uh, there's been a a trend in movies for the last I would, I'm going to say seven or eight years. It's probably longer than that, but it's been seven or eight years that I've been really noticing it. And it's day as night filming, which mm. puts this blue filter over everything. And I am delighted that this movie doesn't feature it. So. In the scene where we cut to Andy walking down and sitting down the stairs and the other disruptors are all sitting there, mm-hmm. it's dark. It's hard to see everybody yeah. who's there. And I, it, I get, it's a really silly thing to point out because the vast majority of people are just ignored and it's only in things like minute-by-minute minute movies that you can really mm-hmm. get into this. But that level of darkness is so rare to see in a film yeah. now that... It makes it feel real. Like it's almost like you're going back to the days when things were filmed on actual film, as opposed to digital. Because it's digital filming that makes it hard to pick up the differences in, in light contrast like that, especially in, in dark places. So that's why we do a lot of day and night filming now, and that's brilliant. And it makes sense, and mm-hmm. it also means that they can have more condensed hours on set and all that sort of stuff, so people don't have to be filming at two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I, but, I well. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go on ahead. Oh, no, go on. I was just going to say, but it doesn't look quite as good to me. So I'm delighted to see actual blacks and actual yeah. darks and actual shades of slightly slightly off-white that are picked up by light sources that aren't the main light source. Well, I it, it it's, it's something I grapple with a lot that I hate that I really dislike that we're in this era where what was for decades the conventional and tried and true method for shooting a movie uh, with planning and intentionality uh, and decision-making made in advance and on the spot and not just saving everything for post, that has become this bespoke art now. Like, that's, that's added value to a movie now. It's not, it's not table stakes anymore, and I, I really don't enjoy that about it. 
uh, about movies in general now. The very sort of coveragey, find it in the edit bay approach to things. And and I know it happens a lot in. Um, it'll happen in your big effects blockbusters because they are um, they are favoring uh, a VFX heavy previs centered um, workflow, and they're bucking budget and time constraints. And I get that, but the way that this is filtered down into every kind of movie is, is really bothersome to me because it's like, it's, it just makes every shot a presentation, not, um, not, uh, something meant to, uh, evoke an emotional response, especially when, uh, contextualized in other, similarly framed shots like there, there there's just been a real weakening to my way of thinking of the art of staging and cinematography and i'm this is nothing against the 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 technicians and artists and crafts people deploying this it's just it, it's it's it, they're fulfilling a demand from on high um you know i think uh um the and but I want to say, as a contrast to that, Steve Yedlin, who is Ryan Johnson's cinematographer on everything, is one of the greats working right now. Um, mm-hmm. He 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 and Johnson together work very carefully to make sure that even though they are on a digital video workflow, that they are still making choices, still making decisions like they would for film, like they did when they were shooting together on film. Uh, and I think... Case in point is there is not a huge visual depreciation between the way Last Jedi is shot and the way Knives Out is shot, but Last Jedi was shot on film and Knives Out was shot digitally. Uh, the extra miracle is that for me, uh, there, there, there was a, 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 a dictum that grew out, uh, a sort of received wisdom that grew out that everyone went to Netflix to make their worst movie because of the way <laughs> Netflix just throws money at buying marquee names and then that's it. Like, you know, but I, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I do think because of Netflix's internal mandates for shooting styles that favor a streaming model, a lot of people go to Netflix to make their worst looking movie. Um, yeah. I, 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 we've been speaking about David Fincher and I love him to death. I think Mank is not a good-looking movie, and Fincher is one of our best visual stylists. Uh, I love Martin Scorsese, and I don't think The Irishman looks very good. And it doesn't look... It doesn't look... In neither of those cases does it look intentionally woven into how the movie is made. It looks like they wanted to shoot their movie like a movie, Netflix wouldn't let them, and so we wind up with something sort of in between. Uh, Glass Onion, for me, bucks that trend, and I have no idea what behind-the-scenes fighting Johnson and Yedlin must have done to be able to protect making their movie look like a goddamn movie. But they did it, and I, I, I just, I love the way this movie looks. I love the way it's shot. I love, there's, a, there's an inventiveness to it that, that, that layers in, you know, we were talking about the CG flames in the, in the previous minute because you're not going to set Catherine Hahn and Kate Hudson on fire for real or you're not going to run that risk. But there is still practical fire going on in there. You know, there's still... It, 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 it's a very good blend of old and new. And both of them, as storytellers and technicians, do a really good job of wiring that in for maximum impact. And um, I, I went in... To Glass Onion the first time I saw it kind of flinching expecting the Netflix effect 
to have superseded what I, the work that I knew that these guys could do, and it didn't bear out that way at all. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%, uh, especially with Netflix movies, and a lot of directors mm-hmm. have gone there, and as you said, it's the worst-looking movie. I will go one step further and say that I don't think The Irishman is a good movie at all. Okay. I think the plot is bad. I think the performances mm-hmm. from 90% of the actors are phoned in, and I was so happy that Killers of the Flower Moon is an actual return to form for Scorsese, whereas I think I think the Irishman is... And I'm not just saying that as an Irishman, but no. <laughs> I genuinely think the Irishman is... I think it's a bad movie. I think it's a badly made movie. I, I don't like 90% of it. It's, <laughs> That's fair. And and I'm not a person who shirks at long movies. I love long movies. Yeah, yeah. But Flower, there's just Flower something about the Irishman... Longer and better and in every better. single yes. way. It just does not work for me. Um, but one thing I just want to talk about cinematography. And stuff. Yes, if you are listening to this and you want to watch a movie that's shot in the older style um, where you do get that real depth of colour and depth of light thing, the creator from this year, directed by uh, Garrett Evans or Edwards, Edwards mm-hmm. um, is brilliant. And it was filmed on film. It's the, the last major motion picture, oh, most recent major motion you? picture that was filmed on old style film, old style cameras. And you can oh, really yeah. tell. And I'm, I'm not like one of those guys like, oh, you need to listen to the vinyl. Um, but sometimes it does make a difference. And I think Ryan Johnson is as good as we have at using the digital technology to make it look like it was recorded non-digitally if that makes sense and his cinematographer does an amazing job of setting up the scenes and setting up the lighting to make it look that way so yeah uh, kudos to all of those guys um alex is there anything else you want to talk about from this minute going through with burning the mona lisa i I think is something we really should discuss because uh it's it is a gutsy choice uh and it's something I laughed my head off when I first saw it because it it's sort of to me it's it's d- different circumstances, although I guess they both take place in blazing uh enclosed spaces, but it's a bit to me on par mm-hmm. with um killing Hitler in Inglorious Bastards, um where it's like we're very late in the movie and the movie has is finally like letting go of its connection to the real world like everything we've seen up to that point could have happened in our timeline uh and i don't think i don't think ryan johnson's trying to posit an alternate universe it's just a fu- it gives me a funny funny little chuckle when you do something so decisive that in real life would be horrifying but in a movie is so entertaining well, killing Hitler actually would have been great. Would have at no point been horrifying. <laughs> uh, let me let me um, uh, let me rephrase that. Uh, you know, clarify that before uh, this podcast leads to like headlines like "Wait, don't kill Hitler!" claims Gradette. Um, <laughs> uh, but that uh, I, I love it because it's like it, it, it's taking the last safety rail off the movie because. You know, like with Inglorious Bastards, you're watching a World War Two movie and they're talking, you know, and they talk the whole time about how we've got, you know, we're going to have all the key Germans in one place 
in, you know, in, in an environment that we're going to control and we're going to use that to kill them all. And you're watching the, you're, you're safely watching this movie going, okay, well, I know obviously that didn't happen. So it's going to be exciting because we're going to have to see how they get out of this one. Um, and then it's like, oh, they don't. And that's the exciting thing. Uh, the exciting thing is a plan, someone's plan working out that creates something so historically destructive that it literally alters the timeline. Uh, and I, I just, I think that's, that's hilarious and not ungratifying to watch because look, I, I have all the respect in the world for the world's fan, you know, for the great works of art. I would never want to see the Mona Lisa actually damaged, but that's why we go to the movies, isn't it? Uh, which I, I think that was a discarded line from Nicole Kidman's opening at <laughs> AMC. You know, we come here to see uh, the um, we we come here to see your fuel of the future barbecue, the most famous painting in history. Um, but uh, so that that's just that's another ticklish little thing for me where it's like, oh, so there is a world. Glass Onion is set in a world where the pandemic happened, but the Mona Lisa didn't survive it. And I just find that <laughs> inherently hilarious um, and just very gratifying to watch. I do like we, we we've been talking about the the how great Edward Norton's performance is. And there is. For me, like a half a second, not of, certainly not of redemption, because he is a murderer uh, and all the other terrible things he is. And it's not asking to redeem him, but there is a note in the performance and in the direction of that performance where you were talking about how his anguish at watching the Mona Lisa under fire and watching all of his machinations to keep it keep it safe good because he promised this the nation of france that he would but then finding his own little you know backdoor loophole for it and then having that be the thing that gets used against him to uh make him liable for its destruction yeah his anguish is very real uh and uh absolutely of his own making but there is in a split second between when the the glass opens and before the fire uh, gets sucked in to to demolish the canvas, where there's a clarity in Miles's eyes, like he's really seeing the painting for the first time for its not just its significance but for its meaning, uh, and it kind of takes you back to what he said earlier when he talks about his mother taking him to France for the first time as a child and, and how, uh, what, what a groundbreaking experience it was for him seeing the Mona Lisa in person. And you kind of see that little boy again, just for a split second before everything collapses. And it's just, you know, it's, I would never have noticed that if I wasn't parsing every second of this, uh, minute for this podcast, but it's such a fun little thing that once you see it, it's like a subliminal ingredient when you're watching the movie at speed and it's nice to be able to appreciate that that's there. Yeah. It's, um, have you ever seen the Thomas Crown affair? In I particular, have. the, the remake one, the mm, one with, mm. uh, thing. Yes, uh, the, the one with thing. Um, so the, the McTiernan one from mm. 1999, I think, uh, mm -hmm. with Pierce Brosnan, in that, so he is a millionaire, perhaps mm -hmm. a billionaire, who's uh, living the playboy lifestyle and 
what I love about that movie is he, in the end, ends up stealing the painting he likes. Mm-hmm. The one that has a personal meaning to him. Right. And probably even, I think he replaces it with a more expensive painting. Mm-hmm. He just drops it in. He's like, well, they can have one of my Shazans because I'm taking this. Right. And he, he's gone with it and he's taken it. Whereas Miles, because he's got no personal taste and he's just copying other people, is just taking the more expensive version. So, the, the, look, so he has to have the Mona Lisa because it's best. And as you said, he probably didn't appreciate the Mona Lisa. And I'm not an, an art expert by any means. No, of course. Right? But... He probably didn't even, as you said, didn't even imagine what it was like until he had to actually look at it as it's about to be destroyed for the last time. And then, yeah, suddenly it's like, oh, shit, this is actually incredible. And it hit him. Whereas then, as I said, counterpose that with Thomas Crown, who is out there to get his jollies and is enjoying stealing stuff. But in the end of the day, it's not the most famous painting in the room that he's always been in love with. It's the one that means something. The one that means something, the one with haystacks in the sky. Mm-hmm. And it's it represents freedom and his childhood, as he says to Rene uh, Russo at some point. And that's mm-hmm. that's the difference between the two characters. Thomas Crown is, yes, by all accounts, a playboy, but also a man of a certain amount of substance, a certain yes. amount of inner, inner quality. And Miles Braun is not. He's just somebody who cribs from somebody else. So yeah, everything about this movie just emphasizes and doubles down on the pieces of information we know about the characters. So, yeah, and, I also, and I also think it's just the whole idea of burning the Mona Lisa, in addition to being like a really gutsy narrative move, but you're so far along in this movie that it's like, if for some reason that offends you, that that you can't get in with the make-believe of it. Like, we're so late in the day here. Like, this is where you're going to disconnect from a movie. But I love it because it also plays off as like a very like cinematic uh, escalation of the time Steve Wynn bought a Picasso and immediately put his elbow through it. Um, (laughs) And I just, when I saw the Mona Lisa go up, I, all I could do was picture when Steve Wynn had done that, Ryan Johnson, like just jotting something down in a notebook, like do something with this someday. um, And then arriving at it here. Yeah, and it and it works. So, mm-hmm. because it's Thursday, um, mm-hmm. and and everybody listening, it's definitely Thursday when we're recording this. For sure, because it's Thursday, I get to ask you any question I want. I'm I'm, I'm left with uh, a Benoit Blanc slate, as they say. Mm. And so I'm going to ask you a question because I've been watching the Undiscovered Country. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've been doing a rewatch of all of the Trek movies. Some of them I haven't seen since I was a little boy. And Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. It's like a complete change of genre while still being in the same universe and still the same tropes that you would expect from a Star Trek Mm -hmm. movie. It suddenly becomes an espionage thriller. It suddenly becomes almost like a a bottle episode of a TV show because the people who are on the Enterprise are trying to find the mole, right? It's like a Tinker Tailor Solar Size situation. We've got uh, espionage between interplanetary bodies and where we have people set up and it's it's also a little courtroom drama for a little bit starring a young Michael Dorn. And Mm -hmm. what... What blew me away about it for the first time, I haven't watched this movie in years, I haven't watched it since I was probably 15 or 16. And, uh, it's just really well made and excellent. And everybody still manages to maintain their characteristics as they are. So, what I'm positing to you, Alex, is I want mm. you to tell me, what genre flip would you like to see Benoit Blanc 
play in a future movie. So not the third movie. We've already kind of discussed this about what we'd like. Of course. But other than a murder mystery, what type of movie or mystery would you like to see Benoit Blanc be involved in next? Oh, that's that's inter- that is, that's a very interesting question. And I think one of the things that makes uh, the, the, the Blanc movies such a joy is they kind of have it both ways. They are set among... Uh, very, very, they're in very luxurious environments of, of a wealthy family, uh, a, a ludicrous billionaire. Uh, so there's this genteel quality to it, even when you know you scratch the surface of that and pardon the expression, but the knives come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Benoit Blanc fits into that perfectly. This very, you know, this genteel southern charm that he has, even though you get the sense like, like you don't. <laughs> We were talking before we started recording about about Daniel Craig as Bond, and we spoke in a previous episode about how tries he might to shed his Bond physicality. I mean, he's still he he's, he's still Daniel Craig, but that said, it's a credit to his performance that you can't really picture Benoit Blanc throwing a punch exactly or having it no. go particularly well. Um, what I think I would like to see if we're if we absolutely positively have to genre flip it is give him a less kid gloves mystery to solve something a little less uh little less lace curtain um i for one you know when we spoke a bit about exotic locales i i voiced an opinion that i would love to see him in the alps in some kind of uh snowy environment and where better than if you drop benoit blanc in antarctica as they're trying to figure out which one of them is the thing Oh, excellent, excellent decision and choice. I, it had never occurred to me, as soon as you said, put him in Antarctica, I was like, oh my God, we're going for the thing. <laughs> we're going for the thing. It's a brilliant idea is what if one of the guys on the research station was the world's preeminent detective? I, I, there is, there's no avoiding what I'm about to do. I apologize in advance. I'm not great at impressions. Uh, I I am not like Claire early on in this one who has to try on the Benoit Blanc accent. But (laughs) if you just want to feel a little bit ticklish, uh, just, you know, just enjoy a a, a not illegal, perfectly allowed thing in life. Then the next time you watch the thing, just imagine if Benoit Blanc was there to say one of us is not what he claims to be. And... (laughs) That already perfect movie becomes ten times better. Like you can't. You what can't... about this? <laughs> what about Benoit Blanc says one of us is not what we claim to be, and it's Wilfred Brimley who says something back to him and goes, "Huh, I agree." Because yeah, because Wilfred Brimley already sounds like that, so we're we're, we're oh, on a, a winner. Point. Get a dialogue between the two of them. I mean, there is a strong case to be made, actually, that Benoit Blanc is the child of Wilfred Rimley from Hard Target. So, uh, oh, yes. with, with that, with that, with that rich, uh, with that rich Louisiana gumbo accent. Um, so I don't know. I think it's it's difficult because also it's like if you, um, I, I can't recall if it's made it to uh, Ireland or not. But have you seen Have you seen Poker Face? Yes, I've seen Poker Face. It it it. 
was about four months after okay. uh, the state scale. But yes, it's brilliant. Fantastic. Thank show. goodness that you have. Yeah, it's splendid top to bottom in a very different kind of mystery than Knives Out. You know, Ryan Johnson's gone on the record to say Knives Out is a whodunit. Uh, Poker Face is a how catch him. There are different tropes. He understands the tropes of both brilliantly. Uh, but I've always said I would love to see Benoit Blanc and Charlie Kale. Uh, come together, and then you get that sort of sunny-side-up version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yes, that would be fantastic. And if we could throw in somebody playing Columbo as well. Like, I let's mean, just why on bring earth them not? all together. Yeah, why on earth not? <laughs> uh, which reminds me, she, there was a rumour that she would, uh, Natasha McAlone was, not McAlone, <laughs> Natasha Leon. Leon. <laughs> Completely different actress. Um, but Natasha Leon was going to be cast as Columbo. I think, um, well, I think what had happened was, I don't know if that was ever a Go project so much as something the internet very badly wanted. Had been and, pushing for, yeah. And that Ryan Johnson then said, hey, that's a good idea, and turned it into Poker Face. Yeah, because um, Poker Face, the first time I saw it, the first episode of Poker Face, was like, well, this is Columbo. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's Columbo, and it's Rockford, and it's, you know, it's it's... Again, it's just designed to delight, and it's like, and I think to, I, I think Ryan Johnson may actually be up there now with Agatha Christie at having invented not one but two brilliant detectives, uh, mm-hmm. who are substantially different, uh, and uh, and just a joy to watch. But but really, I gotta go with my with my my former answer and say that uh, uh, you, you drop Benoit Blanc into uh into the thing and the movie just becomes better by an order of magnitude just uh just just to, to, to make sure i i was getting what you're saying there so if benoit blanc is poirot then charlie kale is miss marple, marple? i i, <laughs> I, love I mean it. i love it these, so much <laughs> as these things go and i think if you well what's funny too is that the way they their their scientific methods for solving crimes are completely different, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, as are their demeanors, I don't think they would get along very well in person. Um, even though Benoit Blanc is, per this movie, best, you know, his close, his close circle includes Natasha Lyonne herself. But, mm. um, but, uh, like, I, I had made a joke on, on Twitter uh, ages ago, like right when Poker Face was new, that Charlie Kale would actually solve both Benoit Blanc mysteries like immediately with her ability to <laughs> to suss out a lie. Um, but uh, you know, but they uh, so they have very different methodologies that I'm not sure that they would blend. But also, you know, I, I'm 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 not immune to a crossover episode. No, yeah, I, I think it's. I think it would be brilliant to see them two of them together, and I, I hope that that's what Ryan Johnson will move towards in the in the future at some stage. Okay, so I think we've we've done all we can on on today's episode. Um, do you have anything to plug for us, Alex? Uh, I do. You can. Uh, speaking of the um, uh, the the films and television shows of Ryan Johnson. Uh, I have a separate Instagram account uh, dedicated to uh, hats worn in movies. It is called Hats from Movies, uh, where I highlight the work of costume designers who do either an exceptionally good job or an exceptionally poor job of matching the hat with the performer, which is a very difficult thing. 
uh, Jenny Egan, who uh, who did wardrobe for both um, Glass Onion and Knives Out, uh, found um, some splendid hats in both movies. Uh, Blanc's um, very specifically tailored uh, bucket hat uh, in Glass Onion in particular is delightful. Uh, Birdie has that great sun hat that is used as a piece of... Uh, uh, he actually becomes used as uh, practically as a piece of scenery for the way when she turns her head and it turns out that Andy slash Helen has been listening in the whole time uh, mm-hmm. and, and has been body blocked from the camera by this hat. Uh, Tracy Gigi Field uh, or Feld, I believe, was the costume designer on Poker Face and Charlie Kale wears a hat like nobody's business. Uh, so if you want to see what I think are some of the best hats in, in entertainment, uh, occasionally branching out into sweaters because Knives Out called for that, uh, hats for movies on Instagram. Excellent. That sounds brilliant. And just mention Instagram. What are your, uh, social medias? What are your handles? Yeah, I, a lot of them are private because I do feature a lot of, uh, pictures of my kid, um, who is too young for his own social media and uh, therefore not o- I, I choose not to keep him uh, open to the entire world. Uh, but you can find me on Blue Sky at Atomic Giant if you want to, if you've listened to this episode and had enough of my BS and want to tell me so to my face, go right ahead. That's a, as good a place <laughs> as any and better than most to do it. No, Blue Sky is too nice for people to tell you that stuff. You, you want to <laughs> yeah, go back onto, onto Twitter for that. Yeah, that's 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 why I'm that's why I'm daring people to do it because I think they'll they'll keep <laughs> the conduct well enough. <laughs> so, um, speaking of Twitter, uh, we have our own Twitter for the show. It's at Glass Onion Minute, all one word, and we also have an Instagram. It's at Benoit Blanc Minute, all one word. And if you've got Treads, it's Treads.net slash at Benoit Blanc Minute. Um, and if you if you're listening to this and you're enjoying this and you haven't thought that we were rambling a little bit too much, if you could rate and review us, five stars would be best. But I mean, we'll settle for a four if you have to be mean. Um, and if you subscribe to us, and again, you can you can um, review us straight into your own podcatcher's thing and it would be aggregated for us. And as I said, I'll try and force Darren to read out future five-star reviews when it's on. If you want to pop on and go uh, five-star review, but mostly for Ollie and Alex, I'll take that. Like we'll we'll be good for this and see if maybe maybe Darren will commission us to have our own show where we get to talk about movies, but no, with no no discernible motive or reason for the entire thing. But I'll chat to Alex for an hour about uh, Star Trek Seven Generations, which I'm going to be watching tomorrow. Um, Alex, a pleasure as always, and I look forward to chatting to you about the last minute. Absolutely, you too. All right, everybody. Bye. Bye.